And you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Brendan Cradell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University, and we are going to be talking about the Oscars. The Oscars were this previous Sunday, and there were some great memorable moments and some amazing performances were honored with the Golden Statue, but of course there were some upsets and some talking points, and I wanted to have a film professor on this podcast to talk about all the ins and outs and politics Uh, and even just the nuanced ways in which we, as film viewers, emotionally regard something like the Oscars, which is a big media production in and of itself and has a population of people who are behind the the wizard's curtain, if I can make an Oz reference, putting in all these votes on these films and determining who gets the statue at the end of the day, despite what, what we may think, how we may feel of who should win, these uh, Academy members are getting the final vote and then we get to watch the results and we emotionally react. And there was particularly something about the ending of this Oscar Oscar event, as there usually always is. There's usually always something very memorable happening at the end. And if you didn't stay up to watch it, you've probably already heard about it. But Brendan is a associate professor, as I said, of cinema studies and recently connected with me because he is local here in the Ferndale area and we wanted to have more conversations about film on this podcast. And it's going to be a monthly thing, so we'll be having him back soon. But today we just wanted to open it up and get talking about the Oscars, as well as what we may be missing when we're not able to watch these films that are quote-unquote nominated in a setting like a theater with 50 or 60 other perfect strangers in a dark room. How do we process the films that way versus this way when we are taking them all in through our living room? What do we lose? What do we gain? But mostly, what do we lose? So we'll be talking about that as well as several other aspects of film. But we are starting with the Oscars. Joining me now on the podcast is Brendan Cradell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University. Welcome, sir. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Excited I'm, to be here. Oh, yeah. I'm thrilled to do this. I I always listen to recaps of Oscars, whether it's on podcasts <laughs> or shows, and I've got to produce one myself. And I'm oh, talking wow. to someone who really knows film. And Brendan and I had a chat recently, and man, did we just really hit it off. And I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with you about films. And we were casually chatting a second ago about how everyone seems to always remember if they remember anything at all from any oscar ceremony the final moment the final few minutes and last night we had an amazing list of nominees uh not even just for film and director but for actor acting awards as well and they did something different this year instead of doing best picture last which has been happening for decades they they made that third to last, and they did our actors, best lead actress and best lead actor last. And uh, you've probably been following this too. I feel like there was a lot of buildup to this where we were really anticipating that that best lead actor award would go to Chadwick Boseman. But Joaquin Phoenix ambled his way out there, mumbled a few <laughs> things, and he opened up an envelope and said, Anthony Hopkins, fade to black. It was just... Whoosh, and uh, it was the word that people are using on the internet is is shocking. And I, I think that I wanted to start there with you and just talk about how we can em- get very emotionally invested in film, but also film awards. Yeah, I mean, far be it for me to stand in the way of the internet. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> this, 
the I have also seen the word shocking being used to describe this, and this strikes me as a bit of a stretch. I mean, we're talking about Anthony Hopkins here, right? Mm-hmm. It would be one thing if uh, Steven Yeun had won this award for a small film after, you know, this really being the first, to my mind, high-profile starring role in a in a feature film mm-hmm. for him. Um, or even Riz Ahmed. Anthony Hop- yeah, yeah, to be sure. Anthony Hopkins, on the other hand, is Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, he's, a, he's, <laughs> so, he's an adjective. I mean, there almost. is a, a narrative, um, obviously, so much work goes into the tending of these narratives ahead of the Oscars. And in the case of Bozeman, you know, there's a... Uh, a real sense of loss mm-hmm. that had had hung over this entire award season to lose this really uh, iconic actor. I mean, in a way, the, you and I have been talking in in one of our chats about um, the way that the Academy has a uh, this habit of paying people back after the fact for work that they've done. Right. And Bozeman's work on Black Panther will be a a generation defining role right Mm -hmm. that people will look back to and the ability to recognize him for that work through ma rainey um you know bittersweet that it would come too late and and in the end it didn't come at all as you said i wonder though you know uh in in the grand scheme of things we need to have stories about the oscars Mm -hmm. because we need to write uh, articles the next day about them and now we need to have ammunition to tweet about the next day mm-hmm. uh, is it that surprising that you know one of the greatest actors of his generation was given the best actor award yeah probably not is it going to detract from chadwick boseman's legacy as an actor uh and and i think the fact that he died so young is going to in in the way that actually Joaquin Phoenix's brother and James Dean before him becomes this this tragic story of Hollywood loss. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'll say uh, five ten years from now I, I'm long on Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, I don't think Chadwick Boseman's legacy needed that Academy Award last night. Yeah, um, I do think as you know as I was saying to you earlier, the decision uh, to switch around the order of things does seem. Uh, sacrilegious yeah Uh, i mean there are some things in hollywood you don't mess around with and just the vista of the best picture winner ideologically it means a lot because movies are made by hundreds of people um the problem with the way that movies present to us is it seems like it's just the work of the actors right of course we know that it's not but to to put the work of the actor last uh, and to make that the final thing is to say that that somehow takes precedence over the achievement of the best picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why and I, Steven Soderbergh knows better than that. Well, so I don't know what he's doing. That's why I had that theory and that there are theories out there that the, the production team was thinking that this was technically speaking, if we compare it to previous years, mm-hmm. a much more diverse lineup of actors more people of color in the nominations and they were potentially banking on the the poignant impact that handing this award to the legacy of Chadwick Boseman would be a great capper would be a great way to end uh the night if if bittersweetly right because it's still reminding us of the sadness but they were maybe banking on that so it just makes me wonder but the Oscars it just makes me laugh Brendan because the Oscars people can can 
poo-poo it all they want, but they always want to talk about it. They always they want do to talk always about want it. to talk about it. And and the people who make the Oscars have a disconnect yeah. <laughs> from their own um their own community yeah. in some way. Yeah. Right. Like I, I mean, let us indulge this theory here that you're floating yeah. that um, you know, the Academy ever sensitive to the fact that it is historically under indexed mm -hmm. actors of color mm -hmm. and under rewarded them for their work, uh, decided to take a calculated risk in thinking that Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman would win the best actor and best actress awards. Well, they didn't, we now know, and they went to two old white actors, older guard, yeah, Francis McDormand mm -hmm. and um, Anthony Hopkins. But to be surprised by that is to be blind to the vote. It is as if one is to be surprised by the fact that the majority of white people voted for Donald Trump in the election, right? right. Like, uh, it has always been the case that the Hollywood electorate, I mean, in, in a way, we really ought to be thinking about the Academy Awards in these terms, which we, we work hard to make that political science part of it invisible, mm -hmm. I think. But it's a vote like any other vote. We know who the electorate is. And uh, we know the tendencies over time of that electorate. I, they have taken, the Academy that is, has taken some steps in the last couple of years to uh, expand the electorate. Mm -hmm. So it's like letting Washington, D.C. in as a state to the sure, union, sure. maybe. <laughs> um, sure. And it has had appreciable differences. I mean, here we are and we're two years removed from, or I suppose one year removed from a Korean film in Korean winning the best picture. We just gave Best Picture last night to a film directed by a woman who was born in China. I mean, there have been uh, material changes. More black actors won Academy Awards last night than would have ever won Academy Awards before. Um, or, if, or if you look at the last decade worth of Best Director <clears throat> wins, they are mm -hmm. many of them from Mexico or Spain or, or where have you. Sure. So, I mean, I think the Academy can say, you know, I don't know if pride is quite the word that they should be using here, but I think the Academy can at least point to changes in the results of the, these votes as evidence that the, the structural changes that they undertook have actually impacted the way yeah. that these votes bear out. But the Academy is still the Academy and <laughs> their bias is always going to be towards long uh, long-running movie stars, right? right? People like Anthony Hopkins. Right. Um, so uh, the idea that that would change uh, on a dime or even over the course of five or 10 years strikes me as exceedingly unrealistic and one that they need to be aware of because they know these people. Well, at any film critic or film professor, anyone whose life is about watching and studying film, you you are also probably more than used to even if just for research purposes, watching a movie by yourself, watching a movie on a yeah. tinier screen. I'm sure you've done yeah. more than enough of that uh, for, for the entirety of your academic life. However, yeah. the, the majority of the planet has not having access to that, uh, that sort of special scenario where you can sit next to a perfect stranger and uh, experience two hours of, of cinema together. And I was thinking yeah. of these you know, we're, we're kind of focusing on all, there were so many great moments from the night and so many great people were awarded Oscars, including Daniel Kaluuya, which is great moments, great performances, but we're focusing on Anthony Hopkins, who has some very showy monologues as the father, and then Chadwick Boseman has two, and then one particularly dynamite monologue. And I remember watching that with my roommate, and there was 
palpable electricity in our living room. And I just felt kind of breathless after he was done. I just wonder what it would be like and what we lose yeah. when we're not next to each other. You know, the Kaluuya speech. Uh, I mean, there are several of them, but the Kaluuya speech uh, that I'm thinking of in the church in Judas and the Black Messiah is such a, a powerful moment of an actor just at the peak of their craft. And in, and it. I mean, the thing that I, makes that film so powerful for me is this coming together of uh, an incredibly somehow uh, underappreciated and yet incredibly significant leader in mm -hmm. Fred Hampton, mm -hmm. who is finally getting his moment in, in the culture, I guess. Um, but the charisma of Hampton married with the, the performance of Kaluuya uh, the writing of that speech in particular, it's just, it will be one of those things that I think we look back on in years to come. And it's so big. The performance is so big. The moment in that film is so big. And so to watch it on your television is a hard thing. Yeah. I mean, when I think about movies that demand to be seen in, this, in the theater, yeah, oftentimes we're actually talking about movies like Fast and Furious. And I'm really excited to go see Fast and Furious in the theater, too. Mm -hmm. uh, but to see films that are perhaps produced on a smaller scale doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be seen on such an expansive screen. Something like Nomadland or Minari are actually the vistas that these films are generating. Demands it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, literally, the screen is wider in, yeah. in the cinema than it is in my house. Um but I, you know, not to be too nostalgic for a, um, a a life of sitting in the dark in movie theaters, though I miss it. The the boom in streaming, I think, has meant at least in the last five years or so, we've been in this golden age where there's been too much money uh, and not enough filmmakers. So there's been films have been getting snapped up at festivals people have been able to see these wonderful films in a way it calls back to the 80s when home video was a new technology and this money was sloshing about and any anybody with a script seemingly could get money to make these films and it's a in the 80s it's a boom period for american indie films you think of filmmakers like spike lee and jim jarmusch are, are getting their start at that time and likewise i think we're going to look back at the 20 teens in similar terms i think what's happened in covid is we we've also now seen the end of that like yeah. the the kind of uh pairing back of investment in new new productions and the insistence on um keeping subscribers means it's more important to have series than it is to invest in feature films so I worry that the future may look a lot more like Tiger King and a lot less like Nomadland, but uh, hopefully I'm being overly pessimistic. Yeah, I think that's important to note because Amazon is in the movie making business. AT&T owns Warner Media. Sony is in the movie yeah. business. So there, there is that's a that's a good thing for folks to remember. So, but I also wanted to talk about something else that is a, a focus of your study, uh, film festivals. And when I think of film festivals, I think of Cannes, and I kind of wanted yeah. to, to dig open something like Cannes because that's another scenario where we as film viewers see any film that gets the, the coveted, and I, and I stress <clears throat> that word, coveted Palme mm -hmm. d'Or award. Uh, we see that as this instant, you're making, you're giving 
you're giving laurels to this film. You're also yeah, you're pretty much literally right. Literal laurels to this film. You're yeah. kind of predicting that it is an Oscar frontrunner right now. Uh, so tell me about film festivals. That's another scenario yeah. where we are watching films together, but there's there's this competition going on too. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot interesting to say there. The question about Cannes in particular and the Palme d'Or is one that um, it sort of puts a uh, an underscore on this idea that these awards mean something inherently. Right. Um, because we know that the awards reflect more of the people who give them, in a sense, than the people <laughs> who receive them, which is something that I think um, that last night uh, Yeo Jung Yoon put a fine point on when she accepted her award for Minari. Um, you know, for all these years, the the Chem Film Festival has been giving that award out. The Academy has been giving this award out. And yet you can count on a couple of fingers the number of films that have won both of those mm-hmm. awards in the same year. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that the, the modal Palme d'Or winner is somehow less good or more good of a film than the Academy winner? Um, I mean, maybe this is like a useful conversation for a bar room or something. Mm-hmm. But in truth, I think it reflects a very different set of criteria that the judges have. And in particular, in the case of Cannes, the, the jury is different in composition from one year to the next. So uh, you can't even really find consistency across those. Mm-hmm. Um, when a film does win or even get nominated for both, that to me is a really interesting subset of films because it reflects the ability for a film to move between the world of film critics which tends to be you know perhaps a bit more um highbrow is a oversimplification but uh, to say it demands a different thing from its films yeah. um than the oscars which uh you know for all the people who write um think pieces on the day after the Oscars that I'm pretty sure were written the day before the ceremony about how (laughs) the Academy is out of touch with what moviegoers want to see. And, you know, why is it that the movies that win the Oscars are nobody watches? Um, The truth is a lot of people will now watch these movies because they've been given Academy Awards, right? Yep. 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 That was something Uh, else, though. Um, Yeah. But say a film like Parasite. Yeah which is the rare film to actually manage the double is um, speaks to just how unique of a film it is that it can move between both of those worlds. Before that, I think of Terrence Malick's film, Tree of Life, another film that managed to cultivate audiences across both the, the set of folks who would be giving out prizes at Cannes and at, uh, at the Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, but more often than not, you know, I think you're those two festival or let's say the Academy and then that particular festival can is answering to a different a different set of impulses. Mm-hmm. I, I actually on the subject of film festivals and prizes much more interesting, maybe uh, when we think about connections to the Academy or the much closer to us film festival here in Detroit, the um, Toronto International Film Festival, which is historically the place that the Hollywood studios look to as the launching pad for their uh, award season campaigns. Notably, there isn't a jury in Toronto to give out prizes as compared to Ken, that the prizes in Toronto are decided by the people who attend those films. Uh, And as you probably know, the voters at the 
the TIFF uh, People's Choice Award tend to be very predictive of uh, which the um, Best Picture winner is. And I hope I'm not going to make a mistake on on Ferndale uh, Public Library <laughs> podcast, but I seem to remember Nomadland winning this year. So I'd have to go back and double check this. But uh, I'm almost positive that Nomadland won the TIFF People's Choice this year, uh, which would continue a long stretch mm-hmm. of winners of that prize. Mm-hmm. Um, Yep, yep, I can just yeah. guarantee quick internet research has confirmed. No yeah, there you go. Was the situation, and I think that that's, in, you used the word campaign, campaign during yeah. award season, which brings us back to that political issue of the Oscars, which we all have to remember. But yeah, on a quick note, I remember, and I think this isn't uncommon, I think that this is this is true in a lot of folks, friend circles or cliques, is the, in a normal year, the nominations would all come out in... December or January, and then that would give us something to do over the next 30 days of bleak Michigan winter. We'd all go out with sure. our Oscar checklist to the theater because it felt exciting to go see what was up. So, yeah. we, so, we, so we did lose that, and it just makes me it makes me wonder. But Well, and this is a thing that I think is, um, you know, each of us individually can think of these sort of anecdotes of our own cinema-going yeah. Experience like this, and the way that the Academy Awards, at least in the U.S., has historically had this sort of agenda-setting function. Mm-hmm. Here are the things that you ought to have seen if <laughs> yeah. you're going to be, you know, a meaningful participant in cocktail party chatter. <laughs> you need to know this set of movies, and um, it used to be. I know you know a ton about. Uh, pop music too mm-hmm. uh this was the function of something like the billboard charts or like the cover of rolling stone magazine mm-hmm. for a long time was similarly meant to steer the conversation and the grammys always wanted to to serve that function mm-hmm. whether they ever did is it maybe a different question mm-hmm. but um today uh and in, in this way i think the music business is you know, probably a decade or so ahead of Mm -hmm. the film industry, Mm -hmm. the fragmentation of the audience in music makes it just really difficult to imagine where that agenda setting function derives from now. Mm -hmm. Like who is coming up with that list of the 20 songs that you need to hear in any given year to have your fingers on the pulse of what it means Mm -hmm. um, to be alive at that time. And I... The Oscars reflect that kind of consensus-driven way of thinking about American film culture. And the truth is it costs a lot more to make a film than a, a song. So it, it, the consensus is going to be um, a, a reflection of the fact that there's just fewer films than there are songs mm-hmm. in any given year. But we may also, because of streamers, because of everything else that we've been talking about, be moving, you know, irrevocably towards this future where to say that everyone needs to have seen Nomadland or My Rainey's Black Bottom is just as crazy as it would be to say that everybody has to hear the new record uh, that that the band's put out, that, that we have too many niches, I suppose. Yes, there's, and as we have talked about before, Four, I think it was BBC released the list of 100, the 100 greatest films of the <clears throat> current millennium, basically the yeah. last 20 years. And very uh, comparatively few, quote unquote, best picture winners are actually on there. So what is, you know, what is valid and what isn't and, and what what it, what are the important works that will stay with us and really, really 
shake us to our core in good ways and bad. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't need that trophy. To yeah. Get yeah. I mean, this is as someone who's who spends part of my professional life putting together syllabi for introduction to film classes. Yeah. Uh, I I think about this stuff because I meet people my age at barbecues or whatever, and they talk to me about the intro to film class that they took when they were in high school or college. 2001 Space remember. Odyssey. Yeah. <laughs> right. They remember the films they watched. Right. And there's something, you know, in all um, realms of culture, be it music, literature, film, etc., we are instinctively suspicious of the canon and what we are doing when we elevate works to the canon. And we should be suspicious of it. But at the same time, by virtue of teaching things, we're doing that, whether we want to or we don't. So we ought to be putting some thought into it, I suppose, is what I mean to say. And you're right, for a generation, more than one generation of students, there's the, the list of Kubrick and Hitchcock and... Coppola's Scorsese and you know the American filmmakers or expats in the case of uh, Hitchcock who really define the history of American movie making um, that list the BFI list is not exclusively American but there are a lot of American films on there and I I think that list tracks pretty closely with the kinds of films that I would expect to be teaching say, five or ten years from now. And the thing is, I don't think it's that mysterious. I think we can tell in the moment. Like, uh, Mulholland Drive was the number one film on that list, if I remember right. And I remember watching Mulholland Drive in the theater and being flabbergasted by what I saw. That Immediately I was aware of what a achievement this was. The same goes for Moonlight a couple of years ago. It's good for Moonlight that they managed to get the Academy Award over La La Land in the end. But in the long run, it doesn't actually matter. Everyone already knew there was no chance that La La Land would have a greater historical impact than Moonlight. Yeah, we were. And I don't mean that, that to slag off La La Land. It's, it's a fine film. Um, but the reasons that films have historical impact are just different, I think, Mm -hmm. from the reasons that they have an impact in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And as I think about some of the films that I watched this year and that were awarded last night, it's hard to imagine, say, uh, some of these biopics that were nominated last night maybe having the kind of enduring legacy. And a lot of that just has to do with the fact that when you make a biopic, you have to be faithful Mm to the story Mm -hmm. to some extent. And it, it really constrains the ability of the filmmaker to bring a sort of uh, directorial vision in a way. I, I struggle to think of more than a handful of biopics that I would say are like of note cinematically. Um, But if you're trying to win an Oscar, on the other hand, <laughs> that's the play is right. to make a biopic right. uh, because those tend to do very well. I mean, they're overrepresented, actually, mm-hmm. amongst Academy Award winners. So <laughs> I don't I don't think Viola Davis needs to take advice from me, no. um, but uh, she probably would be better off focusing on. Uh, biopics in her future uh, because there's much more money to be made in that than there is on getting on film professor syllabi. Um, but it's probably the case that um, more and more biopics are fewer and fewer chances to, to find yourself on the syllabus. Yeah. I, kind of a famous example of 
a biopic that people consider subpar and yet garnered a uh, win. Her best <laughs> lead is the Iron Lady with uh, Barb, sure <laughs> with uh, Meryl Streep. You know, um, Brendan, I could talk to you forever, and I'm I'm gonna be having you back on this podcast, whether you like it or not. This has been a great <laughs> a great chat, but I have to wrap it up here with this idea mm. uh, or this starter, and it's it's gonna come from Francis McDormand, and even when we go mm. back handful of years ago to three billboards outside mm. of Ebbing, Missouri, when she won and, and she got up and she had that sort of just, I'm, I'm entirely over all this sort of energy about her, this sort of, yeah. <laughs> and you can see that even last night when she, when she walked up for her win to, toward the end for her performance. And then she walked up with Chloe Zhao. You can just see it on her face. Like she's over all this glamour. She, she sees right through it. And <laughs> I kind of revel any chance she can get to get to the mic. When she gets to the mic last night, and you had said this would have been a great point to end the ceremony, you you hear that sort of platitude often when a winner is like, oh, I want to thank all my other fellow nominees. You are all great. And she goes beyond that. She's overarching. She says, watch every single film mentioned here yes. tonight inside of a theater. Please go to a theater. And it got me, Brendan. It really got me. Yeah. I felt the same way. And I I I love that she won that award uh, it does mystify me that she is now w- what second only to Catherine Hepburn right. in terms of uh, Academy awarded um, lead act or lead actresses, lead, I suppose yeah. I should mm-hmm. say. Um, and yet she seems to have no interest in actually receiving these awards. <laughs> yeah. um, I wonder if actually uh, in the McDormand Cohen household, they secretly are really excited about awards and it's just <laughs> all affect, uh, but you know, good for them. Oh yeah. Um, these, you know, perf- maybe performative dismissals of the moment though, in McDormand's case are very important. I mean, that speech for, th- for three billboards is also, you'll remember when she called for inclusion riders right? and maybe she wasn't the first, but that moment was a big one in making public Hollywood struggles and the, like the people in the room listening, inability to ensure equity on set. Right. Uh, and she called them to it. Likewise, last night, I, you know, she is the rare uh, person in Hollywood who does not seem to need any of this and right. uses the opportunity to address her peers and also uh, us at home watching um, with a point. Yeah. As opposed to just, you know, thanking her agents or whatever. Um, So good for her. And I hope that uh, won't it be something if when all is said and done, Frances McDormand passes Catherine Hepburn and becomes like the the all time Academy Award winning actor. That Mm -hmm. will be a world that I would like to live in. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to just say, I can't help but not note this, but we started talking about Chadwick Boseman, and I feel like it's going to end up being uh, poetic in this very tragic way that, and I uh, I highly encourage anyone to go out and watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom if you haven't seen it yet. He has this monologue and this this line, it's almost a refrain he repeats often. He says, "My, I've got my time coming to me. And decades from now, we're going to rewatch this performance and maybe we will or maybe we won't remember that the Oscars didn't give him his time and it's going to be interesting to return to this film with that in our minds and our hearts. I think it's going to it's going to hit us 
heavier in a way. And I'm not sure now because I can't see the future, but yeah, I think it's worth noting. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's well observed. And, you know, I, I sense as someone who spends some of my time showing films from yesteryear to today's young people that the first thing that goes is the cultural context. Yeah. Right. Nobody knows what Cary Grant stands for right. or what Marlon Brando stands for, any of these things today. I mean, we know the names, but the way in which we sort of speak celebrity natively today mm -hmm. only extends to the celebrity waters that we're swimming in, in right. a sense. So to us, to you and me, you know, our associations of Bozeman to uh, not only the Roland Ma Rainey, but even more particularly to a visibility of black empowerment in Hollywood and especially in the role uh, in Black Panther it's likely the case that 20, 30, 40 years from now, that will have sort of faded into history. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually, and this is maybe a, a sobering thought to think about uh, by way of closing when it comes to the Academy Awards, the focus for us watching the Academy Awards is disproportionately, and as we began talking about today, structurally this time, focused on the actors. Mm -hmm. Over the long run, I think the acting recedes somewhat. It's not that we're not able to witness powerful performance. I mean, my students still watch Falconetti and The Passion of Joan of Arc and are watching silent film actors who are able to command the screen. But what they don't have when they're watching that is a sense of who was dating who and what was the drama that was going on, <laughs> which is so much of what makes us interested today, right. frankly, uh, when we're watching these stories or when we're watching the Academy Awards. Um, in the long run, I think the the directors become more significant to the films. Um, and uh, that's a way of thinking about how the Academy Awards change over time in their meaning, I guess. Um, yeah, but fodder for future conversations. Fodder for future conversations. <laughs> uh, we're going to have Brendan yeah. back on this podcast where we'll be talking about international films in the future. And let's let's maybe plan on talking about some of the great directors too. Maybe we could just riff on that. We'd love to have yeah. you back. Maybe talk about Pedro Almodovar or Wong yeah. Kar Wai or Jean-Luc Godard. We'll, we'll have Fellini you back. got a shout out at the Oscars last <laughs> night. And and like Laura Dern, Julieta Messina means the world to me. So I was glad to hear her name get shouted out. Uh, and Thomas Vinterberg yeah. is one of the guys who made me super excited about movies when I was a young guy, when oh, I saw great. a celebration for the first time. That's great. It was eye-opening. Yeah. And so to see him last night be getting his recognition and and for Mads Mikkelsen to be shouted out from the Academy Awards. That was really cool. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you have just listened to two people geek out about films. Hopefully <laughs> you are geeking out too and we'll be having more content in the future where you can geek out with us. So thank you again, Brandon Cordell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jeff. It was a real pleasure. Anytime. And that was my chat with Brendan Cradell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University. We'll be excited to have him back on the podcast soon. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat about all things Oscars and all the complicated politics that are woven into that three and sometimes three and a half long televised event that we all watch every year and emotionally respond to. 
This has been A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast. It's brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. If you want to find information about how to support, you can go to ferndalefriends.org. And if you especially enjoyed this episode, please share it to social media or just tell a friend. If you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, subscribe, or leave a comment. It would help us find other listeners. The music that you hear coming in and out of this podcast each week is by local musician Chad Stocker. I'm Jeff Milo once again, and I was joined by Brendan Cordell. Look forward to another episode in a month or so. We'll be having him back on to talk more about film. Thanks for listening. <laughs>